Brothers and sisters, Jesus' tomb is empty. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And that historical fact isn't just good news for Jesus once he was dead and now he's alive, but it's good news for us. Through the believer's union with Christ, there is an inseparable link between our eternal fate and the fate of our risen Lord. Uh, According to God's eternal plan, Jesus is the first fruits of all who have died in him. Which means Jesus' resurrection is actually the first installment. It's the down payment on our future resurrection from the grave. Jesus is the first fruits. All who are in him, all Christians, we are the full harvest to come. But this is a truth that many in the church in Corinth did not understand. Some didn't believe that Jesus would raise the corpses of believers. And so Paul has been warning them throughout chapter 15. He's been saying, guys, if there is no resurrection, then there is no Christian faith at all. You may as well say that there is no cross. The gospel has been shattered into 1,000 pieces. If there's no resurrection, then first and foremost, that means that Christ has not been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised from death, then the apostles' preaching is useless. Our faith is useless. The apostles are false witnesses who misrepresent God. We're still in our sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died trusting in Jesus Christ, are eternally lost. They're in hell. Christians of all people are the most to be pitied if there is no resurrection. Now, the whys and wherefores, how the Corinthians came to their denial of the resurrection of the dead, that's, that's difficult to piece together. Uh, but for this chapter to make any kind of contextual sense, we need to at least try to do that, because a great deal of what the Apostle Paul writes is actively dismantling their unbiblical worldview. Every commentator I read believes that there is a material-spiritual dualism at work in this church. Material stuff, stuff like flesh, physical flesh, that's bad. The, the, the immaterial, the spirit, that's good. That's to be preferred. Uh, there's also at work an over-realized eschatology. We've looked at this previously in the sermon series. There, but there's an over-realized eschatology at work in the church. A theology assumes, assumes that all or most of the blessings of the age to come are already being experienced in all of its fullness. They've already arrived. Almost certainly, those two errors are what's lurking behind the Corinthians' denial of the resurrection. An over-realized eschatology and this, this spiritual, physical dualism that's at work. And so Paul needs to make a couple of points very clear. And he has been, but he will be more, doing more so today. Number one, the resurrection on the last day is a physical resurrection. Christians are not floating about the afterlife as ethereal spirits. We do not go to heaven for eternity as disembodied souls. One day, our body will be physically resurrected. God will raise the Christian's corpse. But, secondly, 
Our resurrection body is a transformed body, a body patterned after the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. New City, there's really one theme dominating our text today, and it's the title of our sermon, Flesh and Blood Cannot Inherit the Kingdom of God. Our present physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. Our present bodies must be transformed. And let me say up front that that with every text I preach, there comes a point in my sermon preparation where I I hit my head on the ceiling of my God-given abilities. Uh, in every passage, there, is, there are interpretive issues and flows of thought that I don't see for myself or that I don't understand. And, and so, like all preachers, I get help from various sources, uh, various teachers that the Lord has provided his church for the past 2,000 years. I consult commentaries, sermons, articles, blogs, books, you name it. Uh, today's text had me hitting, hitting my head on that ceiling pretty early on. Uh, but thank the Lord, I found a short article written by Dr. Stephen Wellam, a Canadian, entitled Christ's Resurrection and Ours, which proved to be an invaluable resource. Uh, Dr. Wellam does an excellent job of simplifying the thrust of this very complex passage, and I'm borrowing quite freely from that work today. However, the illustration I'm about to lay on you has nothing to do with Stephen Wellam. Uh, I take full responsibility for this. Uh, as you probably know... Zombies are very popular right now. Uh, They're the undisputed king of all entertainment genres, probably after superheroes, I'm thinking. Uh, But they top the bestseller list. Uh, They're the subject of popular video games. They've been a staple of horror movies from the 1960s. The undead dominate television, too. Eleven seasons of The Walking Dead. And major cities all over the world host annual zombie walks with tens of thousands of participants. Have you ever seen one of the Toronto zombie walks? Like, whoa, hide the kids. It it is disgustingly freaky. They go all out. Uh, And because we no longer live in a culture where the Christian concept of resurrection is understood, as sad as this is to say, and I'm not trying to be funny, the first association people in our culture may have as we speak of our glorious, eternal hope, as they hear the good news of of 1 Corinthians 15, where our culture's collective mind first turns when we speak of our resurrection from the grave on the final day and the triumph of Jesus Christ over death is something like a zombie apocalypse. That's just the culture we're living in. I, I can't tell you how many people in my evangelism have had to actually disabuse of that notion. Uh, it's, it's the only frame of reference they have. That or Frankenstein's monster. The reanimation or resurrection of a corpse. No, if people believe in a post-mortem existence at all, people are inclined to believe in an afterlife, I think, of disembodied spirits. For whatever reason, being an ethereal spirit for eternity, to our cultural consciousness, that sounds sort of nice. That sounds nice. It seems appropriate somehow to be a spirit forever. And to our shame, brothers and sisters, I would 
I think most Christians have no problem with that idea. Many Christians in the West, certainly most Christians I'd wager, think only of going to heaven when we die. Without ever denying the teaching, they've never really considered having a resurrection body for all of eternity. A body like Jesus' body. And then living forever on a new earth. Not as disembodied souls in heaven. Which is interesting. The pagan culture of Corinth had their own outlook on the resurrection of dead corpses. And so does ours. So there's, there's common ground here, I think, for us with the Corinthian church as we go through 1 Corinthians 15. Look at your big picture in your bulletin. Paul addresses the philosophical root of the resurrection deniers who assume that the resurrection refers to God's animating corpses. But Paul explains that God will give resurrected believers better bodies. God does not simply resurrect corpses with the result that there is complete continuity between one's earthly body and one's heavenly body. No, God resurrects and transforms corpses with the result that there will be both continuity and discontinuity between one's earthly body and heavenly body. So if you look at your first point in the bulletin, the nature of the resurrection body, it is, it is reasonable. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How would you answer that question? And I think it might do us some good to be pushed on this a bit. Uh, Christian, has your gospel proclamation to the lost ever reached this point? The point where you deliberately move beyond Jesus, crucified and resurrected for sin, to speak of your own certain hope of resurrection from death in a transformed physical body. Have you ever talked about that? Have you ever proclaimed that? I hope so. That's just as linked to the gospel as the forgiveness of your sin or the imputation of Jesus' righteousness. I, I mentioned this, this definition of the gospel every single week. Armando's already done this, actually. But the good news announcement of what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus for sin, and in consequence of Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, what he will accomplish in the new heavens and new earth. And our transformed resurrection body is part of what God will accomplish. It's part and parcel of that good news that we're supposed to be proclaiming to all. And we can see, based on Paul's response in verse 36, there's obviously an unbelieving incredulity in the tone of this question in verse 35. With what kind of body will they come? Verse 36, how foolish or foolish person. Paul's calling this person a fool in the Old Testament sense of that term. Uh, this this foolish person has failed to take God into account 
the God who is our creator, the God who is our sovereign Lord. He's saying, you foolish person. He's not saying you're unintelligent. He's saying, you foolish person. How can you ask that question when the God of the Bible is reigning on his throne? Really, if you think of it, Jesus' reply to a different question from the Sadducees regarding the resurrection Uh, It would fit very well here as well, where Jesus says, no, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's why you Sadducees are denying the resurrection. You neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. And to explain things, Paul gives two analogies. And this being an an agrarian culture, his first analogy is about seeds. Uh, Look at your bulletin again. The analogy of the seed, verses 36 to 37, illustrates from everyday experience that one living thing through death can have two modes of existence. Paul is emphasizing both continuity and transformation. And then he links continuity and transformation to the resurrection of believers. 36b. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So in one sense, then, death is actually the precondition for new life. New life comes from death. He's saying just look at the natural world, look at seeds. Verse 37, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So if we want to grow uh, an apple tree in our backyard, we don't plant a full-grown apple tree into the soil, right? We first plant, we sow an apple seed into the ground, and then the seed must die. Only then will the apple tree appear. This is agriculture 101. Of course, seeds don't technically die uh, before producing a plant, but they appear to be dead. Paul's just using ordinary uh, phenomenological language to make his point. Sort of similar to how we routinely communicate without scientific precision when speaking of the sun rising or setting. Jesus says very much the same thing in John 12, 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So first, the seed is buried in the earth, and then it dies. And out of death, a new expression of life springs forth. In other words, what Paul's saying here is, you ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Simply look at the way that God has arranged the natural order of plant life. In the everyday occurrence of the seed, you have the answer to your question that you're asking. There is continuity and transformation between the seed and the plant. And if God has so arranged and ordered the natural realm in this way, if the, if the life through death principle is common for seeds in nature, then why is it so hard to imagine that our sovereign creator and Lord can transform our present body, which will die and be buried, into a transformed resurrection body? It's entirely reasonable. Brothers and sisters, when a dead Christian is buried in the earth, God's purposes are not thwarted by death. As with the seed, what is sown in death is brought forth in new life. Verse 37. When you you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So a believer doesn't start out 
with a heavenly body, a believer starts out with an earthly body, a body God will later transform into a heavenly body. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. And now Paul moves into his second analogy to better describe for the Corinthians the nature of the resurrection body. So mind-blowing concepts on every side, right? But just keep this sermon guide in front of you in your bulletin. Look at your bulletin. The analogy of the kinds of bodies, 38 to 44, is intended to illustrate the phenomenon of bodies being adapted to their existence. This is where he takes it now. So, for example, there's a specific, a specific kind of body designed by God for human existence as well as for animal existence. Verse 39, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another birds another, and fish another. Different kinds of bodies are designed by God for different kinds of animals, bodies appropriate for their own kind of existence, such as birds or for fish. So a blue whale has a body that is not adapted to life in the jungle. Right? It's going to die. <laughs> Neither does a sparrow have a body adapted to life at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has determined, one that's appropriate, one that's adapted to its God-ordained existence. Many of you wouldn't know this former member, but our, our late brother, uh, Josh Stoffer, uh, he died a few years ago, but he was from Alberta, and, and God gave Josh a body that was adapted to Alberta winters. So when Josh came to Ontario to attend Bible college, this guy walked around in the middle of February in a T-shirt, habitually. His body was created for and suited to Alberta existence. There's also different kinds of bodies depending upon whether a created thing is designed for a celestial existence or an earthly existence. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another and stars another. And stars differ from star in splendor. Each celestial body has its purpose, its design, its glory. Again, by analogy, this is how God has ordered life to be in the natural realm then why is it so hard to imagine that God could actually do this with a resurrection body? That's how he's arguing here. And, and just as God creates every animal with its own kind of body that's adapted to its own kind of existence, so God makes our resurrection bodies adapted to a future resurrection existence. That's Paul's point. And I, I get really excited just thinking about this. I mean, this is what a glorious, glorious concept this is. I mean, now, we can't let our imaginations run too far ahead of us. They need to be constrained by the boundaries of Scripture. But this is something that as Christians, we need to consider this. A star is celestial, right? It's heavenly. It's not meant for earthly existence. But a star is ideally suited for life in space. A blue whale cannot cope with living in the sky like a bird, but it's ideally suited for life in the sea. In the same way, our physical bodies, ideal for this earthly existence despite their mortality, will be useless 
in the perfection of God's consummated kingdom. It would be like a dolphin flopping about the, uh, the Sahara Desert. What needs to happen then is for our bodies to be buried when their work is done. Because from that raw material, from that seed, God is going to produce a spiritual body. Verse 44. A body perfectly suited for inheriting the kingdom of God. How does God achieve this? Through the gospel. God decrees that by faith, through the Holy Spirit, his elect will be united to his crucified son, raised with Christ in power, in the power of his own resurrection, and transformed into his likeness. That's how this happens. Which means, brothers and sisters in Christ, we'll be just as suited and adapted to bodily life in the new heavens and new earth as is the eternal Son himself. The nature of his resurrected body, his supernatural flesh, will be ours. When you read those accounts in the Gospels of the resurrection of Christ and all the things that he's doing with his resurrection body, we will have exactly, precisely the same kind of body, the same kind of supernatural, resurrected, glorified flesh. Isn't that amazing? It's astonishing. The more more we look into the Gospel, the deeper we delve into the glories which await God's children in the new heavens and new earth, the more we see the grace of God. This is just amazing. This is, we're actually going to be inheriting this. And this blessing of resurrection life, this is a free gift from the same God against whom we've risen up in anarchy and revolution. And yet we have this. We get this. New City, our God is indeed the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Verse 41. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. And then Paul sets up a series of contrasts between the body sown and the body raised. The body sown is a natural body. It's perishable. It's subject to decay. It's sown in dishonor, Paul says. Look at, it, look at it how you will. There is nothing honorable about a decaying corpse as it's being put into the grave. It's sown in weakness. In fact, the dead body is the very symbol of powerlessness, isn't it? And for all these reasons, it's for all these reasons that our present bodies couldn't begin. They couldn't begin to cope with life in the consummated kingdom of God in all its splendor. They couldn't handle it. Our present body is in bondage to decay. It's corruptible. It's a natural body. And there's no way that this corruption can be halted. Uh, This isn't something a doctor can fix. This decaying, corruptible body can only be buried and then transformed by God into something else. That's the only solution. Verse 44, the body sown is a natural body. The body raised is spiritual, which that does not mean that the body raised is ethereal and immaterial and ghostly. Both bodies are physical. 
Those two words, natural and spiritual, they describe the essential characteristics of one body at different periods of salvation history. Greg Blomberg rightly suggests that in this context, the contrast might be better indicated by translating the adjectives natural and supernatural. Verse 44b, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Right now, our bodies are natural bodies. They're earthly bodies. They belong to the life of this present age, and they're adapted to it. But the body raised is spiritual. It's supernatural. It's being adapted for that final consummated state dominated by the Spirit of God. The Spirit significantly enhances the heavenly body so that it is superior to the earthly one. It is raised imperishable, no corruption, no decay, a body that will never die, that will live forever. It is raised in glory. It's raised in honor. One commentator writes, it's as far surpassing our present body as a beautiful plant surpasses the seed from which it sprang. It is raised in power, which means our resurrection body will not be limited as our present body is. Our resurrection body fitted for the new age will be characterized by power, the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Our new body will be the result of the Spirit's work as well as his eternal vessel. We will be filled with the Holy Spirit, possessed by the Holy Spirit for all eternity. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as supernatural bodies. The scope of Paul's vision here is huge. It's glorious. This is the most transcendent of truths and one day all of us who are united to jesus christ we're going to experience this for ourselves brothers and sisters but right now we see as through a mirror darkly but there's more there's much more paul uh, wants to move his argument forward and so he once again he puts on his his salvation historical eschatological sunglasses And the apostle looks back to the very beginning of human history in the Garden of Eden with Adam. And then still wearing those glasses, he then looks forward to the end of human history, to the last days that were launched 2,000 years ago in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And through God's Spirit, Paul makes a salvation historical contrast between Adam and Jesus. And this is what he says. Verse 44b, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. Now we're going to take this nice and slow. Uh, This is the last, I think, of the hard stuff. 
And after these verses, it's relatively smooth sailing, but it's glorious, glorious teaching. The background, I think, for understanding these verses was laid for us last week when we discussed uh, the salvation historical link between Adam and Christ and how every person on this planet is either in Adam or in Christ. Either Adam is our federal head, he is our representative, or Jesus is our federal head. He is our representative in God's eyes. Look at your handout. The contrast Paul is making between Adam and Jesus at this point is in terms of the nature of their humanity. Adam, by virtue of creation, is of earth. Jesus, by virtue of his resurrection, is of heaven. And just as believers have shared the earthly body of the first Adam, so also will we bear the heavenly body of the second man, Jesus. Adam is the covenantal head of all humans, and Jesus is the covenantal head of the new creation. With what kind of body will Christians have in the resurrection? Precisely the same body as our federal head, the resurrected Christ. And just incidentally... Uh, the way that Paul is arguing here in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22, as well as verses 45 through 49, necessarily implies that Adam really existed as the first human being. I'm just throwing that out there for free. The way that Paul argues necessarily implies that Adam really existed as the first human being. Verse 45, so it is written, Genesis 2, 7, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. What's that? What that is saying is that Adam was given a certain kind of body at creation. It was a natural body. It was a body of the earth. It was a body created from dust, which as a result of sin is subject to death and decay. And since Adam is the federal head of the old creation, Since he is our, all of ours, natural representative, then we bear his likeness in our fallen state. But Jesus is, praise God, unlike Adam. Jesus is a life-giving spirit. He's not only alive, Jesus gives life. He gives resurrection life to all who are in him. Our first representative can't do that, only our second And the order in which believers experience the natural body and the the spiritual supernatural body mirrors the order in which Adam and Jesus appeared in human history. Verse 46, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven, as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. Again, all whom Adam represents are as he is. They have a body suited only to this present existence. I say that again. They have a body suited only to this present existence. And as Adam died, so like him, all who are in Adam, so at death a corruptible body that is of the earth. So friend, if you've not repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus alone for your salvation, abandon all hope of ever having a body raised imperishable, 
raised in glory, raised in power. All who are in Adam keep their body of death. There is no transformation. And know this. We do read in other texts of Scripture that the bodies of unbelievers, too, will be raised on the last day in physical form, but it will not be a body adapted to the splendors of the new heavens and new earth. Friend, your body will be adapted to the environment of hell. It's so terrible, it's so dreadful, I I can't even think of it, I can't conceive of it. Raised physically to experience hell. This is a matter of first importance. But the bodies of resurrected believers will be like Christ's, fitted to live with him forever in glory. 48b, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. That is supernatural and glorified, imperishable, immortal. Philippians 3.20, kind of a, a, a complimentary set of verses here. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Christian, do you pray that that day will come soon, soon is that a gospel reality that you eagerly anticipate? Do you think about the coming, the return of Jesus Christ and your own transformation? Are you always wearing your eschatological sunglasses throughout all of life, every day? Is the drama of God's salvation as it unfolds over all the biblical history, is that ever before your eyes in this passing world? Is your life lived out in the hope of this truth. Do you pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus? Because all this happens only at Christ's return, not before. Even though the kingdom of Jesus, even though the kingdom that he has inaugurated is already come, and even though we already are new creations in Christ, we still must await the future when our lowly bodies will be transformed and fitted for the condition of the consummated state. I declare to you, verse 50, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. That's what he's saying which is precisely what the Corinthians have failed to grasp. They've adopted false views of spirituality that have led them to believe that they, they've now, even now, assumed this heavenly existence. They have an over-realized eschatology. 
They, have a, they just dismiss as being very crass and crude anything physical in eternity. It can't be that. It must be spiritual and ethereal. Paul says, no, that final reality still awaits the second coming of the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. But there's still, there's still one more point Paul wants to make before he, uh, the, his final word of exhortation. Look at your second point, the assurance of triumph. The heavenly body is necessary. Now, <clears throat> perhaps there's someone here today who's tempted to say, Pastor John, why in the world is there all this fuss over a physical body? I mean, who needs it? Let it go. I- I'm more than happy. I'm more than happy to be a disembodied spirit floating about an ethereal heavenly world. That sounds good to me. After all, all that really matters are the spiritual realities of love and joy and peace and righteousness and goodness and truth. Why all this fuss over arms and legs and hands and feet and hair and eyes and ears and tongues? Uh, it just seems so earthly, right? right? Give me, just give me Jesus. Give me Jesus forever. God forbid. God forbid. No Christian who understands the gospel, no Christian who understands the whole biblical story of God's redemption would ever, ever, ever want to believe such a thing or desire such a thing. We need to take a, Paul, a page from Paul's book. Paul, because he's always wearing his salvation historical sunglasses, he realizes something the Corinthians and many Christians today have forgotten. The God of redemption is also the God of creation. The God of redemption is also the God of creation. Genesis 1 and 2. It's repeatedly stressed that God made everything good, including physical, material reality. Uh, But due to the disobedience of the first man, Adam, sin and death have now entered into the world. And, And what's crucial to stress, since sin and death affect both physical and spiritual reality, so redemption, if it's to be complete, and God is to be all in all, so redemption must also affect both the physical and the spiritual realm. So do you see that the dead in Christ must, we must be raised bodily. Our earthly bodies must be transformed. God's plan of salvation is only complete when both those things have been accomplished. The God of redemption is also the God of creation. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood, that is human nature as we know it, mortal, perishable, sin-stained, decaying, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery, which is something God has previously hidden but is now revealed. We will not all sleep. We will not all die. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. When the last trumpet sounds, God will transform the earthly bodies of two groups. Number one, dead believers. God will resurrect dead believers and transform their earthly bodies 
into heavenly bodies. The second group is living believers. God will transform the earthly bodies of believers who have not died into heavenly bodies. That that last generation of Christians who are alive when Christ returns. That might be 10,000 years from now, we don't know. In both cases, the old body will become a new body. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, when Jesus returns. There are so many glorious texts that uh, tie into this, but turn quickly to Romans chapter 8, verse 19. This is on page 1133, if you're using our church Bible at the back. Romans eight nineteen. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And brothers and sisters, our body fits into that category of physical creation. And if God is to be all in all, if God is to be supreme over everything, everywhere, forever, sin and death must be destroyed. And for death to be destroyed completely, the dead in Christ must rise. Not to have a resurrection body, to be content with a disembodied afterlife in an ethereal spiritual world. Beloved, at the, at the very root of that gospel-shattering picture of eternity is the trivialization of the, of the reality of both sin and death. Do you ever hear people waxing philosophical about death? Have you ever heard someone say, she had a good life. Mom lived 85 years. And, and that's all well and good. But then they say, and after all, death is part of the natural process. That's certainly not how the Bible views death. That's certainly not how God views death. And it's certainly not how Christians are to view death. Death is part of the curse. Death is an abnormality. Death is an intrusion into God's good universe. Death is a robber. Death is the just penalty due our sin and rebellion against God. Death is an enemy to be defeated. It's the last enemy. They've, they've taken it down now, but 15 years ago on the, on the southeast side of Jarvis Street Baptist Church, there used to be a huge sign overlooking Allen Gardens. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 And whenever I walked by, I was always glad to be reminded of both parts of that verse. The wages of sin is death, 
but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we must look at the big picture. We, too, along with Paul, must always be wearing our salvation historical sunglasses. The, the drama of God's salvation as it unfolds over all the biblical history from Genesis to Revelation is to ever be before our eyes. If God is, tru- is to redeem, to truly redeem his people and this world, if God's plan of salvation is truly to be complete, then not only must Christ be raised as a demonstration that sin has been dealt with in his cross and death has been defeated, we too must be raised with him. If we let that go, we let go of the gospel. Because without Christ's resurrection, without our resurrection in him, There is no salvation. And if we do not rise from the grave, God's good creation is not restored. And God's plan of salvation does not encompass all that sin has affected, both the spiritual and physical realities. That is why all those who die in Christ and all of us who are alive when Christ returns will and must be raised and we will be transformed. Those who are alive when Christ returns will be transformed, verse 51. Those who are dead will come out of their graves transformed, verse 52. It must be so. It must be so. For it is only then that what Jesus inaugurated in his first coming will be consummated in his second coming. Death itself, the last enemy, finally and definitively will be destroyed. Verse 53. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then, and only then, the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up, gobbled up in victory. Not a limited pseudo-victory over death. That's what a disembodied spiritual post-mortem existence would be. That's a pseudo-victory over death. No, our bodily resurrection on the last day signifies absolute victory over death. Our bodily resurrection signifies the destruction of death, the death of death. Then the victory taunt may be sung, and that's what this is. It's a taunt. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Christian, know this. If Jesus does not return before you die, you will be laid in the grave. You're going to die. One day, it will be you the firefighters are prying out of the demolished car on the side of the 401. One day, it will be you in the last stages of the disease volunteering as a guinea pig for the latest experimental cancer-fighting drug. One day, it will be you hooked up to a machine to keep you breathing 
One day, it will be you in the coffin. It will be your funeral we're attending. Brother, sister, in spite of that, you can look in the face of the reality of death and make a mockery of it. Why? Because Jesus, who died for your sins, is alive. And in his death and resurrection, death has been destroyed. Sin has been paid for, and the demands of the law have been met. Verse 56. Jesus has nailed our sin to his cross, thus securing our justification, our reconciliation, and our redemption. In breaking the power of sin, in paying its penalty, and satisfying the demands of the law, Jesus has destroyed the power of death, and he has removed its sting. And this is how every Christian can taunt death, even as relying on our deathbeds. Ours is the victory in Christ. In his resurrection, the end has dawned. Even though we may die before he returns, we shall, indeed, we must be raised again to life. He is the first fruits. We are the full harvest. Therefore, Paul concludes, verse 58, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.